This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. Amazon, Condé Nast, Apple, Google, Starbucks, Kellogg. It seems like every week there's news of employees at another big company trying to form a union. The share of U.S. workers who belong to a union has fallen by about half since 1983 when 20% of American workers were union members. But there has been a renewed interest in organized labor in the last few years. In fact, as of late last year, pro-union sentiment in the U.S. rose to 68%, the highest it's been since 1965. Also, before we go any further, I should disclose that Fast Company and parent company Mansueto Ventures are represented by Writers Guild of America East. There are a lot of reasons why organized labor is having a moment right now. COVID highlighted the unreasonable working conditions that many employees who were deemed essential were enduring. And amid the great resignation of the last two years, employees have started reclaiming power by demanding better wages, safer working conditions, increased benefits, and in many cases, some of the things that we talk about on the show, including pay equity and a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Joining me to talk about what's behind the new labor movement and what both employees and managers should be thinking about at their workplaces is Kim Kelly. Kim is the author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Her writing on labor, class, politics, and culture has appeared in The New Republic, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, and more. Kim, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So in your book, you highlight a lot of the history of diversity and marginalized groups in labor movements, which I don't think is something that many people immediately are aware of or necessarily associate with labor movements. Can you give a little background on the role of marginalized groups in organized labor? Yeah, sure. It's kind of funny that there's still this enduring avatar of what a union worker looks like, right? Big burly white guy in a hard hat, works in a factory, works in a coal mine, looks like my dad, basically. And those guys are here. Shout out to them. You know, we love them. But that's not the whole story. And every other type of worker has always been here, too, whether we're talking about women, black folks, indigenous workers, disabled workers, queer workers. Every type of identity that a worker can have has been represented in the labor movement kind of from the jump, whether or not they were welcomed into the formerly organized labor movement as it stood at various points in time. I mean, whether we're talking about the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in 1925, founded by A. Philip Randolph, that organized the black workforce that worked on the luxury Pullman cars on the railroad, or Dorothy Lee Bolden organizing black domestic workers in Atlanta in the 60s, totally independently without the support of the mainstream labor movement, or, you know, Asian and Native Hawaiian uh, sugarcane plantation workers organizing with the ILWU. National Longshore Warehouse Workers Union in Hawaii in the 1940s. Like, there have always been marginalized people involved in labor. We've always been part of the working class, but whether or not we've been given top billing in mainstream understandings or discussions of labor is another matter entirely. And so we're going to we're going to kind of get to that a little bit later as to why especially for marginalized groups 
organized labor is, is appealing and what the benefits of union membership are for marginalized groups. But you mentioned the archetype, right, that a lot of people have in their mind of like what a union employee is. And it is something that, you know, people associate with industries like auto workers, minors, teachers, nurses. But especially in the last several years, we've seen a lot more, as they're called, knowledge workers in industries like tech and media start to organize. And those that, you know, have traditionally been viewed as like the good jobs. Why are those industries starting to organize? Well, I mean, I was part of that. That's how I ended up here. Uh, when I was working at Vice in 2015, we organized. We were, I think, after Gawker, uh, RIP, we were the second big media shop to organize with the Writers Guild of America East. And that was at a point where it wasn't as much on people's radar, right? The idea of a bunch of, you know, scruffy bloggers in Williamsburg organizing was a little bit of a foreign idea, even to me. And I grew up in a union household. But it became quickly apparent as we we're talking to our coworkers, talking to organizers, like, oh, we're being exploited too. We're being underpaid too. This isn't fair. We're, we got a raw deal here. A union will help us address those issues and hopefully fix them. And all it really took was that spark and that got things rolling there. And really, I think that's what we're seeing across these other industries, whether you call them knowledge work or white collar or creative industries, whatever floats your boat. I think people are becoming more cognizant that even if you have a quote unquote cool job or a good job, still a job. And a union really is the only mechanism for workers to actually make material change in their workplace when they work collectively, when they are working collectively. And I mean, there's not even that big of a jump when you get down to brass tacks. If, for example, if you think about this ongoing and really incredible wave of organizing uh, among grad students, tons of them joined the United Auto Workers to the point where this storied union founded in like 1935 in the heart of Detroit, like the ultimate blue collar industrial oriented union. I think a full 25% of their members now work in education, work in schools, like they're grad students, they're other types of education worker. And it just shows that when the more traditional labor union movement is willing to adapt and kind of grow with the times, that's how it gets stronger. That's how we bring more people in. And hopefully we continue to see more of that as, you know, as the years and decades go on. I think a lot about of the, I think it's the New Yorker union effort where one of their taglines is you can't eat prestige. Mm. And it is kind of, I think for those in media and creative industries and tech jobs too, that a lot of it's like, oh, you're lucky to have this job. You sacrifice, you know, especially I think in, in media and creative industries, like you, you sacrifice for this role and you don't need those protections of, you don't need the paid time off and all of those like guaranteed, you know, sort of things because you have, you're lucky to have this prestigious job, right? And yet Condé Nast workers are organizing, you know, video game workers are organized with a uh, code CWA and just notched a win at, uh, I think, Raven Quality Assurance. Like, I think people have just kind of woken up to the fact that, yeah, you can't eat prestige. Your landlord doesn't accept cool points or kombucha. You know, when I was working at Vice, I remember one of the, and this was back in 2015 even, I remember one of the tipping points that really helped us push our organizing forward was <laughs> two weeks after we started having these conversations, one of the founders bought a $23 million mansion that was used in the Entourage show. And some of us were making 30 grand a year living in Brooklyn. The material realities of working for a cool place or having an interesting or fun job, like just because you're not working in a coal mine, folks that work in coal mines are probably getting paid better than people that work in the New Yorker. And they've had, because they've had unions since 1890. 
Yeah. When you say kombucha, it's funny because that just makes me think of like all of the tech companies of this is, you know, maybe five, 10 plus years ago where it was like, look, we have ping pong tables and cold brew on tap and like all of that. And it's like, and we've written about this, you know, extensively at Fast Company, like that's not what matters to people. Like what matters to people are the basics that matter to everybody, to teachers and nurses and auto employees and writers and video game designers and yeah, and everybody. Yeah, pay us enough so we can buy our own kombucha. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. I say a a stat at the beginning of the show that union membership has declined drastically, you know, since 1983, but there is this renewed interest in the last couple of years. What do you think is behind this kind of like new renewed interest in the last couple of years in organized labor? It's really a confluence of things, right? The past couple of years, we've been living through this deadly pandemic that disproportionately impacted Black and brown folks, the most marginalized workers, the most marginalized communities. And those communities are often doing the most essential labor, right, to keep the world running. Whether or not people have continued to recognize that labor is essential, whether or not people have stopped banging their pots and pans or pulled back their hazard pay, that labor continues to be essential and continues to be devalued. I think there's a reason that we've seen so many workers in retail and in delivery service and in sanitation in all of these like just person to person, hard, difficult, blue collar, no collar, whatever jobs. I've seen people quitting and trying to find different employment and trying to change careers because they're sick of being treated like garbage, especially when they're being forced to go out in a deadly pandemic and put themselves and their families at risk every day just so a couple people who have email jobs can stay home and order DoorDash. You know, like I think there's been a, a very big uh, shift in the way that folks see the value of their lives and their labor. And we're seeing that manifest these new ways of organizing. And we saw Striketober last year. We saw this idea of the great resignation. Like workers are fed up and they realize like our work is what keeps things running. They need us, the people at the top who are signing our paychecks or trying to screw us out of receiving a W-2. Like they can't do anything without us. Maybe we actually have an opportunity here to harness this power And I think there's just like a side note, the fact that for a brief moment in time, the government actually helped out normal people for a little while and sent out some stimulus checks, sent out a little bit of relief. That gave some people enough of a little buffer to take a step back and think, okay, maybe I can move to this different job. Maybe I can pivot. Maybe I can, you know, just have a little bit of breathing room and think about what I want to do with my life and my work. And I think all of that is kind of coming together, add in the tight labor market, add in the continuing pandemic, add in all kinds of stuff. But basically, I think workers are sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they're realizing that the best way to address that and force change is by organizing collectively. And so all of that makes perfect sense for, you know, the quote unquote essential workers, right? Because those are the jobs that really got hit the hardest and for lack of a better phrase, were like the worst jobs to have during the pandemic. And then, but then on the the other side of that, you know, you mentioned the computer jobs, the, you know, all of the, again, white collar jobs that were lucky enough to be able to work from home during the pandemic. But we're seeing that organizing in those industries too, How does kind of the pushback to the return to office, the increased scrutiny over diversity, equity, and inclusion matters, kind of all of those topics, how did those fit into our new interest in organized labor? 
it's an interesting question. And I'm still trying to figure it out myself, right? Because I've worked from home for a couple of years, but even just talking to friends and seeing other folks discuss how big of a difference it's made for them to be able to control a little bit more of their time and a little bit more of their labor to take back that time from the commute, to take back the, you know, the awkward kitchen conversations in the office just kind of realize that, oh, we don't need that this structure we've been forced into and told is essential for us to be productive. We don't actually need it. We don't need to be in an office for what we do. So much of our communications is happening digitally. And maybe that's a good thing. It's kind of gave people a little bit more of a sense of freedom that they didn't realize was, should have been theirs the whole time. You know, when you get caught in that grind, it's hard to see outside of it. And now that folks have had a taste of that, especially folks who are disabled, who are parents, who are caring for other people, who have long commutes, like there's so many different factors that so many workers have to deal with, even if they do have have the email job, have the office job, that make it harder. And it's always the people who are the most marginalized who have to deal with the most BS and extra layers of garbage, right? Like, and those who have already you know, organized and become part of unions, they're able to enforce that. Like the News Guild is a great example. A lot of the workers who are part of those locals in New York, they've had it written into their contracts. We have The company has to talk to us. They have to bargain with us to figure out return to work policies. And that's how it should be. You know, like workers should have a say in their working conditions. That's, that's kind of the whole thing. We've been saying that since 1835. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. That's so true. And, you know, we we cover that a lot at Fast Company. We cover that a lot on the show is this disconnect between management and employees on work from home and return to office, especially, you know, and around a lot of the flexibility around time. And we've seen, you know, that that it really is that thing that was the pressure before. And now it's like, oh, there's another way that things could be I don't want to return to 2019. Like 2019 work was broken. We need a new a new frontier of the way that we're going to be working. And another thing that I wanted to ask you about is, is this a generational thing? Like, are we seeing Gen Z or millennials more interested in organizing than Gen X and, and boomers? Is it appealing more to younger workers than middle-aged or older workers? I think that's very much something that's happening and it makes total sense, right? Like this generation, like Zoomers and my generation, millennials, I mean, we were born into a world where the gap between the haves and the have nots is just insurmountable, right? Climate crisis, world's on fire, student debt is crushing everyone. There's no healthcare. The political machine is broken. Like the rise of fascism has consumed the past five years of my life and everyone else's like, it's not a good scene. And I think especially as younger generation are entering the workforce, so many of them have already become really attuned to these political and social and cultural issues. They've already been interested in issues of justice. Like they've grown up around the uprisings around George Floyd's murder. They've grown up with Black Lives Matter being an established, you know, movement. Like it's not, it's not new to them. The idea like, oh, you need to fight for what you need to make things better. And I think as more of these younger folks are entering the workforce, they're seeing, oh, well, we need to take this energy into the office or into the, you know, the job site because this is broken too. And I mean, even just the rise of things like labor Twitter and labor TikTok and the fact that they're like Gen Z people on Twitter who are like organizing to screw up Amazon's union buster job applications or 
you know, the, just the astounding wave of vitriol that will meet any union buster on Twitter, on social media when they do something ugly. Like it's, I think that this current generation and hopefully my generation too, are just realizing how much power we really have. And they haven't necessarily been uh, subjected to the amount of anti-union propaganda that I think our parents had to deal with, especially those who were active during the early 80s after you know Reagan broke the PACO strike and shifted the balance of power interaction between capital and labor. Like it's it's been a slow decline, it's been a steady decline. But the kids coming up now, like they don't I mean, unless they have read about it and shout out to them, right? But they don't necessarily know about all of the the downward spiral that so many older folks have seen the labor movement have to suffer through as far as they're concerned. Oh, we can unionize and make some stuff happen? Cool, let's do it. I mean, there's a reason that so many of the Starbucks baristas leading the charge on that organizing wave are like like 19, 20, like way younger than me. And it's just really cool to see because you know, unions are cool. You know, they've always been cool, but they're like pretty cool again. I mean, and that's reflected in the fact that, you know, 60, is it 62 or 68% of Americans uh, uh, are pro-union now? I think that number's even higher, like in the 70s for 18 to 35. Like there's been a shift, like whether it's generational, whether it's just, you know, being in the right place at the right time, like we're gearing up for a hot union summer. <laughs> so, so what are some misconceptions that people have about unions? Yeah, I think the most common ones that I've come across are sort of like the tried and true ones, right? Like, oh, unions protect lazy workers. Oh, they're just a business trying to take your money. Oh, they're, you know, they're using your dues to buy fancy cars or, you know, they're just these political engines that don't care about normal workers. Or or it's just, you know, shades of Fat Tony from The Simpsons. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely, I think like one of the tropes you hear a lot is, corrupt union bosses, right? Like it's just a scam and they're going to take your money. Right. And that's a, I mean, there's historical precedent for that. Like unions are not a monolith and the labor movement's not a monolith. There's been a lot of messed up people (laughs) have been part of this movement throughout the years, you know, like the Teamsters alone have had, uh, there's a whole movie about them, right? But, (laughs) but there's also so much potential for change too, when people are actually willing to do the work. I mean, the fact that the head of the Teamsters now, Sean O'Brien, came in uh, as a result of the Teamsters for a Democratic Union slate, like this progressive reform slate, like, that's a big deal. He was just meeting with Chris Smalls from the Amazon Labor Union the other day. Like, just because there have been dark spots in in organized labor's history and bad actors and ugly moments in, in labor's history doesn't mean that you can discount all the good it's done. For the patriotic folks among us, it's like, well... Are you going to throw away the entire history of the U.S. just because of all the many, many, many ugly, terrible parts of that history? Probably not. This is the thing, you know, like the only way to make things better, to make movements and institutions and structures better is to do it yourself. You know, like we got (laughs) to if you love something, you should be able to criticize it. And if you want to preserve it, you got to be ready to fight to make it better for yourself and for the people to come after what are the the misconceptions maybe that employees might have or like fears that they might have about organizing? Like I can get fired or, you know, this can happen to me. Like what do you hear, you know, people are kind of like most afraid of with unions? 
I mean, retaliation is the big thing, right? Like, oh, if I talk to you, if I talk to a union organizer, I'll get fired. I'll lose my job. And of course, that's terrifying. Or just general retaliation on the job. Like, oh, the boss, like, I get along with the boss. Are they going to be mean to me now? Like, are they going to be mad at me? You know, am I going to get in trouble? Because so many workers don't know because they're not given the information that you are allowed to discuss pay on the job. You are allowed to unionize. You're allowed to organize. Like we have these rights. Like people fought and died for us to get these rights. There's just a lack of knowledge around them because of course the bosses aren't going to tell you about them. And unless you kind of know where to look, you aren't necessarily going to be familiar with these various labor laws, right? Unless you're lucky enough to have a friend or a family member in a union, who can show you the ropes. And, you know, especially folks that are in, for example, like folks that work at Amazon, that's the amount of surveillance and intimidation and really just high tech, big brother style garbage that they have to undergo just to go work these incredibly difficult, heavy labor jobs and make a little bit of money. Like that's a precarious situation at best. And when you're trying to organize, when you know you're going up against what the boss wants you to do, that is a Herculean effort. You know, any worker that decides to organize in this country is a freaking hero because of the odds that are stacked so high against us. But um, I think a lot of it just comes down to people don't know what their rights are and what they're allowed to do and what the, and the benefits that come from organizing, right? Like it's scary and it's hard, but it's worth it. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that people don't know what their rights are. I mean, you, you mentioned pay and that's a huge part of why a lot of employees want to organize is unfair pay. But, you know, as you say, like people don't know that you are allowed to talk about how much you make and ask people how much they make. And that's not like there's not laws against discussing your salary, but there's that view that it's taboo and, and not allowed. Right. Yeah, it's such a weird, especially, and I've seen that play out at my old workplace when we started sharing salaries, we started organizing, and a lot of discrepancies became very apparent very quickly. I think at one point, a person, a dude was in, who had the same job as me and less experience was making 20 grand more than me. And I was like, that doesn't seem right. I remember we found out that the only woman of color who was like heading a vertical there, she was making like 30 grand less than everyone else and a white guy with like way less experience than her. Like that's the kind of thing that comes to light. That's, that's why it's so important to organize around it. Right. And that's also why the people in power don't want us to be organizing and talking to one another, because that's when all the dirty laundry comes out and we see, Oh, they're not, not only are they treating us all pretty crappily, but they're treating some people so much worse than others. And as soon as we find out it's going to be held to pay. So they tell us, Oh, don't talk about that. Don't worry about that. It's rude. It's gauche. It's taboo. There's a reason they don't want you to talk about it. Or you hear a lot of like, oh, well, there's other factors as to why, and which is true. You know, there certainly is a range within any position, you know, based on experience and education and those sorts of things. But there is a need for some sort of transparency. A lot of union contracts obviously have salary floors for each position, like those sorts of things, so that there's room for people to make more or less within a position, but that it's codified and transparent. That's the thing about having a union contract. It's a legal document that lays out all of these like rules and regulations and stipulations. Like it's just, you know, one thing that I've seen people say too is like, oh, well, I get along with my boss. I get treated really well at work. It's like we have benefits. Like we're cool. It's like, yeah. But what happens if your company gets bought? What happens if your boss has a change of heart? What happens if something shifts in their economic situation? Like all that could go away at the blink of an eye unless you have it down on paper. You need that piece of paper to codify 
and just protect everything, everything you like about your job. Like, that's great. Good for you. Get it in writing, you know, because you can't trust these guys. But that's a really good point, too, because I think that is a misconception that you have to have a a hostile work environment to want to form a union, right? Fast Company is represented by Writers Guild of America East, as is our parent company, Mansueto Ventures, and our sister publication, Inc. And we did not have a hostile work environment. The employees didn't organize because they were unhappy. It was to get some of these things in writing, as you say. And you can have a a boss that you love and a position that you love. But as you say, you know, what if your publication, what if your company gets bought? What if your manager leaves? It's just kind of having those things in writing that maybe your manager might not always have control over. So it's not just down to the goodwill between two people. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be ready to march out and fight the next battle of Blair Mountain against your boss to want to have some things down in writing, you know? (laughs) It's like having a friend who's your roommate get something down on paper just in case something gets weird, you know? Yeah. You still, you still have a lease even though, yeah, exactly. That's a, then that's a great analogy. I'm wondering, you know, what does it look like on the other side of the table? So, you know, there's been some pretty well publicized pushback from companies like Amazon and Starbucks and Apple in the, in the last couple of years. If there's a larger pro, I mean, and this kind of gets to like you know, the answer might be no, not necessarily. Like if there's a a larger pro-union sentiment from a worker standpoint, is there usually or does that sometimes conversely mean that there's a larger anti-union sentiment from the management standpoint? Well, of course. I mean, that's the rub of it, right? Any bit of power that the workers take back, they're taking away from the people at the top. We've seen that play out with Amazon and their incredibly robust union busting efforts. We're seeing that play out with Starbucks right now, it's kind of wild to see, like, especially these big public facing, nominally progressive companies that, you know, they donate to good causes and they, they talk about sustainability and about how they want to connect the world. But then as soon as their workers are like, hey, we would like a, some say in what happens to us and what goes on during our work days, they just freak out and try to crush their efforts. And I mean, that's how it's always been, whether we were talking about, you know, the, the actual robber barons back in the day, the Jay Goulds and Rockefellers or Jeff Bezos right now. I think you're right, for sure, in the in the union-busting efforts that we've seen. I don't want to paint it as a us-versus-them sort of all management is greedy and evil and the workers must fight against these greedy and evil management. And a lot of people that listen to this show are sit in one of the two camps or maybe both, you know, that everybody's an employee. And there's a lot of managers that listen that listen to this show. If you are a manager and you are listening to this and thinking, that's not me. I'm not greedy and awful. And I do have a good relationship with my employees, I think. You know, what what should a, a manager, a well-intentioned manager be thinking about um, in relation to, you know, watching this, this pro-union sentiment rising? If you have a good relationship with the people that you work with, just kind of let them know, like, I think this is cool. I think this is a good idea. You know, if you guys are into it, I'll support you. I obviously can't be there, you know, shoulder to shoulder with you because of the org chart or whatever, but like, I'm into it. I'm down. I got you. And then just kind of stay out of the way. That's the best thing that managers can do. I think like that was something I remember some of the managers that we had back at Vice like we know, like okay, they're they're pretty much down, but this is our fight. This is something that we're doing. It's us and, and like the the middle managers, the people in between, right? Like the the layers between you know the workers. There's management, then there's the top brass. It's never really like 
us versus them in terms of us versus the people that we work with and like directly report to. It's the top brass. It's the CEOs. It's the company itself that workers are kind of scuffling with. And so when folks who kind of occupy that middle ground see this happening at their workplace, just be supportive, be cool. And, you know, if you see your, your, some of your coworkers whispering in the kitchen or like going off for a coffee break, maybe just turn your head. Don't worry about it. You know, if they ask you to support, if they ask you to wear a button or sign a petition, do it. That's really helpful. That's great. But just kind of have their backs and make it make them understand that, like, yo, I'm on your side. Even if I can't fight with you in the same way, like, I got you. This is cool. I believe that you deserve a union. I believe that you deserve to organize. It's as simple as that, you know? Yeah, I think that it's really an opportunity, you know, and I've I've talked about on the show before how for managers, like feedback is such a gift, right? You know, when an employee tells you you're doing this thing and it's making my job harder because of this, like that's a huge gift to get. And I think, you know, listening as a manager, listening to the the demands of and the desires and the needs of your employees is a real gift in that from a management standpoint, it's like, okay, how can we work together to make sure that you get a fair contract that's fair to everybody and that makes everybody happy and engaged and, and the benefit obviously to managers in this era, especially is you keep your employees, you know, you don't lose them. They're not going to, you know, be as likely to, jump ship because they're unhappy if they have negotiated to get the things that are the most important to them. And they're actually then saying to you what's most important to them rather than just quitting and finding a different job. Yeah. You have an opportunity to be an ally and to use your power for good. (laughs) Kim Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. For more on the new labor movement, check out Fast Company's new worker movement package and cover story from our summer 2021 issue, including a profile of labor leader Sarah Nelson. The link to that package of articles can be found in the show notes for this episode. And we want to hear from you. Do you belong to a union? Is your workplace considering organizing? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work was produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. 